You are now listening to the Hack My Age podcast, the show that brings you guests for biohacking women over 50. I'm your host, Zora Benamu, a digital nomad, certified sports nutrition and breathing coach, and master student of gerontology at the University of Southern California. I'm the author of the Longevity Master Plan, the cookbook Eating for Longevity, and a new upcoming program, Energy Reboot for Women 50+. Plus. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and I would totally appreciate it if you could please leave a review on Apple Podcast to help others find us too. This is a small but very critical gesture that makes a huge impact for me to support a podcast for older women and to help us grow stronger and really get our voice out there and attract even more amazing guests to the show for you and for me. Before we start, I am so excited to announce that I have been invited to speak at the Biohacking Congress in Boston on June 11th, 2022. And I'm going to be speaking about a topic that rarely gets attention in the biohacking community, and that's biohacking for women who are over 50, which looks at the specific health needs and the solutions for older women. And I'll be giving hacks to this audience that is often overlooked, but this is also valuable insight to the younger biohackers about what they could expect for their future selves. So join me on June 11th and get your tickets at biohackingcongress.com and use the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, for 20% off both the live and virtual congresses. I'll also include a link in the show notes for you, so don't worry. And if you can't make it in June, there will be many other amazing speakers at the biohacking congresses in Las Vegas in March and Miami in October. And you can still use that discount code Zora for those events too. Why do humans have such a hard time finding the energy to exercise or to do any kind of fitness or sport? Mm-hmm. Um, so I am, I am an adjunct professor in kinesiology as well. So this is a huge interest of mine is, is exercise and, you know, how that relates to sleep. Um, it is, it is very challenging for people, especially, I think, I think habits have a lot to do with it as well. So if you're not used to exercising 150 minutes per week, which is the recommendation, it's really hard to kind of break those habits. You know, there's only a certain amount of time during the day and we're really trying to balance family and school and work and both exercise and sleep kind of goes to the wayside. I love your idea. I think there was, I saw one video of yours and one of my favorite books is uh, Atomic Habit by James Clear. One of the things he talks about in there is to start by like getting everything ready. So for example, if you want to set a goal of exercising in the morning, get your running shoes right by the bed when you wake up, get your running clothes, you know, ready to go right by the bed to make it as easy as possible for you to transition. And I loved one of the videos you had posted where just start small with 10 minutes and then maybe, you know, you'll want to go longer. So I think, yeah, really understanding the importance of both exercise and sleep and then building in little habits that you can do throughout the day and just making it easy to um, try and accomplish those is really important. 
I thought you were going to say the, the post I made where, where I put my roller in the middle of the living room because I wanted to set the goal of rolling more, you know, and, uh, and it works, you know, if it's sitting in the corner, I don't see it, I forget. But if it's sitting in the middle of the room or somewhere I can trip over it, uh, it reminds me, oh yeah, I should at least do a couple minutes. Everyone can do a couple of minutes. So I like that. I don't remember what, it's like the five second rule or something like that, that maybe it came from that book, but yeah, make it easy for yourself. And so true when you say that sleep and exercise go hand in hand. And those are the first things that leave that go to the wayside when people are stressed out and life just catches up with them and they'll put sleep on the back burner. And then of course the exercise goes out the window because you don't feel energized to even do the exercise. Even if you did have a little bit of time, you'd rather just sleep in. But, you know, it can get out of control because if you do make sleep a priority, which I think, I think it should, how do you fit it in then if you are, you know what I mean? Like it's, you got to catch up with the sleep, but then where do you fit in the exercise and how do you balance this out? If you're all stressed out, you don't have energy to exercise, should you, or should you just sleep in and recover? These are really fascinating questions that are, that are pretty difficult to answer. I would say trying to fit exercise into your daily activity. So for example, this was a lot easier when people were were commuting into work. So for me, I would take a train and walk the last 15 minutes into my office. And when I was in the office, I was on the 10th floor. So I would take the stairs up to the 10th floor. And so there were definitely ways to build in exercise into my daily living. And so I would recommend for people to get creative with that as well. Can you um, maybe ride your bike to the grocery store or can you take a walk outside, take a break? You know, normally we're supposed to get breaks during the day, even if we are walking or uh, working from home. So trying to build in exercise into your daily living is really important. When it comes to should I exercise or should I sleep, that's a challenging question. And I I think the first step is to figure out how much sleep you need to perform your best and start at that point. And I know this can even be a challenging question. And something we're really interested in studying as well, using like EEG metrics, Can we determine like a certain brainwave pattern that shows, okay, yes, this person has met their sleep need, they're able to perform well. And I think this is a million dollar question, how much sleep do we need? And it's very individual. So starting with the minimum, uh, adults need between seven and nine hours of sleep per night. So starting with that minimum and really understanding without downing a pot of coffee how is this sleep working for me? And am I waking up naturally without an alarm? And and starting at that point, and then so really trying to understand how much sleep you need. Another tool to figure that out would be how much sleep do you get when you're on vacation? When you don't have any work obligations, when you can wake up kind of when you want Uh, how much sleep are you getting? And when you don't have to set an alarm. So starting with that minimum amount, adding in exercise into your daily routine, but then really trying to meet the exercise recommendations as well, which is 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise per week. And that can be 
hike on the weekend. It could be all, all in one shot, although that's probably not the ideal situation. And in some of the research that we did, we found that 45 minutes of exercise bout uh, three to four times per week was really ideal when it came to depression. So when we're looking at mental health, that was really, really kind of an important number was that 45 minute bout four to three to four to five times per week was really valuable for the best uh, mental health. Exercise, it had to be get your heart rate up to 80% or what was that or just normal moderate exercise? That's a good question too. What is moderate to vigorous? And the definition is even where like a brisk walk where you're even having a little trouble keeping up. So even a brisk walk could qualify as moderate to vigorous exercise because you're getting your heart rate up. There's not necessarily an exact definition of like heart rate percentage going up. Anything where it's you know, a little bit more challenging to talk to someone. Uh, so it really depends on your fitness level. So if, if you aren't super fit, it could be just, you know, a walk, but if you're more fit, it may take more jogging or running to really get you in that moderate to vigorous uh, exercise category. Yeah. The, the monitoring your, if you're able to talk is a good, is a good way. You know, if you're still able to have a chat, easily, then I would guess, you know, that's a good, it's a simple measure that, that if you don't have one of these Fitbits or some, you know, Apple watch to monitor, but I think that's such a simple way to go. Are you, is your heart rate getting up? Are you a little out of breath? Are you having troubles talking? You just can't, you know, this is the time you shut up and start focusing more on the exercise. This episode is sponsored by Primadine, a supplement that if I had to choose only one, it would pretty much be this one. It's because primidine is spermidine. And this has been shown to activate autophagy, which is super important. And it's basically a cellular cleanup and recycling process that declines as we age. When we get older, our cells accumulate a lot of junk and a lot of waste, and this isn't really great for us. So we need to clean it up. So if you want some research, go to primidine.com and you can see all of it supporting cognitive health and heart health, hormone balancing, and long and strong hair, nails, and eyelashes by using spermidine. So another very important reason why I love primidine in particular so much is that I've never had received ever as much feedback about a product as I have with primidine. Literally several times a week, someone reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram with an amazing testimonial. And most of the time it's about improved sleep. So I can honestly say that I can 100% be convinced now that primidine is the best spermidine supplement you'll ever find. And you can try it with a 15% discount by using the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, on primadine.com. And that's P-R-I-M-E-A-D-I-N-E.com. Now enjoy the show. The other thing that I wanted to add to that is you know, defining movement all throughout the day. One way I get it in is to move from sitting to standing when I'm working. On the, I work on the computer a lot lately with my studies. And um, I work, and so I will sometimes sit in the floor and use have the computer on a coffee table. 
And that way I have to sit, I have to stand, I go to the toilet, I got to get up. And I try to get up without using my hands so that I use more muscles in the body. And then I will go to a standing desk and then I will sit in a normal desk and then, you know, just try to get different elevations. And what you said about going up the stairs too is such a great way to incorporate it. And I, I have some clients in Hong Kong, I recommended that too. And they're like, but I live on the 64th floor. So I'm like, okay, well, you just go up as much as you can in the beginning, you know, 10 flights or whatever it is, and then just keep adding on it. You don't have to do all 64, but we have to keep in mind uh, where people are living sometimes. When we incorporating exercise, it's got to fit in somewhere. I think that's a great idea you have in terms of you don't have to go to a gym for an hour and you can try to get it into your day. And so when you th think about the adequate number of hours of sleep, should we be um, with the goal of figuring it out in terms of not waking up to an alarm, just whenever we wake up before the alarm and then we calculate and that's probably we need whatever it is, eight or seven or whatever it is. Yes, I really like that way of figuring out how much sleep you need based on the alarm. So this is outside of like, I'm talking about, you know, if I wake up at 4am or something, I wouldn't say to myself, oh, I only need four hours of sleep. So kind of within the window of normal sleep, waking up without an alarm can be a good way to say, okay, I'm not only getting the duration that I need, but also the quality and the timing is right as well. So, you know, a lot of us have to wake up early. We have to set an alarm and that's probably not within our ideal timing of sleep if we're having to set an alarm. So yeah, I would say waking up without an alarm is a really good sign that you're getting good quantity, quality, and timing of sleep. So what about somebody who's just can't get their butt in gear and like, I just, I want to be motivated. I want to exercise, but I always wake up so tired. Should they just force themselves to get outdoors in the sunlight or something, or should they just work on their sleep and figure that out? Yes. I would highly recommend getting light outside, especially in the morning. This is one of the biggest areas that I try and educate people on is the importance of light and how that helps regulate our circadian rhythms. I did a, a little experiment myself actually, where I tested my light levels in my office and I was at a hundred lux. So lux is just a measure of brightness. And I thought to myself, okay, let me go outside on this cloudy day and let's just see how uh, light it is outside based on these lux levels. And I went outside on a cloudy day and it was 14,000 lux. So 140 times brighter outside than it was in my office. And the research shows that getting bright light is very effective for sleep quality. So if we get bright light throughout the day, it's important, but especially in the morning, because when we wake up, we likely have uh, some melatonin, levels still rising, especially for those night owls as well. And teenagers, you likely have a lot of melatonin in your system that is making you groggy. And one of the things that eliminates melatonin is bright light. So that's why it's really important to get bright light in the morning. It's going to help shift your rhythms to a normal time and really lead to good sleep quality at night. 
And I will also say that exercise timed properly can also help shift our circadian rhythms as well. So exercise in the morning will help shift your circadian rhythms to an earlier time, which is typically what a lot of us need because not that we're more likely to be a night owl, but our society requires us to be up early for school and work. And so most of us, what we need is to help shift our circadian rhythms to an earlier time. And so getting both light in the morning and exercise independently without light helps shift our circadian rhythms, which will really lead to better sleep quality. Now, for me, I traveled to Europe right before the shutdown happened. And for me, I'm traveling from Canada to Europe. This can also be a strategy for jet lag as well when, once we're back to traveling full bore. But uh, for me, I ended up signed up for an exercise class at five in the morning, which I would never do ever in my life. But I knew that it would help shift my rhythm to an earlier time, which is what I needed when I was traveling to Europe. It was amazing, like with all these little tips and tricks that I did, how little jet lag I had when I was in Europe. And my friend was absolutely shocked. She's like, oh my gosh, you were doing amazing. And um, yeah, I, I really think exercise can also be a tool for optimizing your circadian rhythms as well. So for example, the opposite is true if you're if you want to become more night owl-ish, so let's say you go to bed at 8 p.m. and you don't like that, um, exercise in the evening can help shift your circadian rhythms to a later time. So it can be used, the timing of exercise can be used to help not only our sleep quality, which it does, but also help optimize our circadian rhythms. Oh, that's so, such a great information. And I, I use the same when I travel, when I was a nomad and crossing time zones all the time, definitely I was in the gym and it, it helped adjust that the light and the food pretty much were, were key. I had clients who said if they've done some intensive exercise in the evening, not too close to bedtime, but in the evening, they get more exhausted than if they were in fall asleep faster and seem to have better sleep. Whereas I have other clients who say just the opposite. What, what is the science showing us in terms of exercising timing as well for better sleep? I think when we see advice out there that says don't exercise too close to bedtime, I disagree with that. I think there is, the research is mixed, but there are a lot of studies out there that show that exercise close to bedtime isn't such a bad thing. Now, typically I'll say no vigorous, moderate within an hour of bedtime, because you do need some time to unwind. Uh, you'll see a lot of advice out there that says within four hours of bedtime. And I, I think it depends on the person. Overall, I would disagree with that statement. I think that you can exercise close to bedtime, just not maybe within an hour. It does take time. One of the things when we go to sleep is that our temperature drops. If you are exercising vigorously within an hour of bedtime, it's likely going to take time for your temperature to drop, which just makes it more difficult to fall asleep. So I would say Absolutely. If your clients are, you know, exercising two hours before bed and they find that it's helping for them, I say go for it. 
Yeah, it sounds like, should I eat before I train or not eat before I train? And you just go, well, you got to try both and see what happens. And it could be very, very individual. Hey, I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. So if you do sleep too close to, to bedtime, then that may make it hard to fall asleep, but would it disrupt your sleep in the middle of the night? Actually, there was one recent study on this where subjectively the people reported to that it was kind of bothering their sleep, but when they looked at it on an objective measure, they were getting deeper sleep. So I think it is kind of an individual thing you may subjectively think, oh yes, I'm getting a poor night's sleep. But in reality, when you look at the sleep objectively, we see, you know, deeper amounts of sleep. And that goes for exercise any time of day. What happens is we have more deeper sleep because of the exercise. So that's really important for people to keep in mind that we haven't touched on yet, that uh, exercise leads to better sleep quality. And even in people with insomnia, so people having harder time to fall asleep, maybe waking up during the middle of the night, when they prescribe exercise to these people, they end up sleeping a lot better, um, especially if if they weren't currently exercising a lot. Yeah, that's something to keep in mind as well. That's an interesting point because I'm studying the mind-body connection. It's all about stress and stress levels. And so the science has been showing now that we can, exercise helps a lot with the stress. So when you think about how stress can be related to sleep, you're not getting a good night's sleep because of your stress issues. Well, it just kind of makes sense to me. I purposefully, when I am stressed out, I make sure that I exercise and then I prioritize that because it helps reduce cortisol, which is, you know, our stress hormone. It helps reduce you know, adrenaline. Although during the exercise, you may be activating the sympathetic nervous system. It has long-term impact on afterward impacting the parasympathetic nervous system. So that relaxation system. So that is an important thing for people to consider too, is when you're stressed, exercise is an important component that you want to include because that will also help with sleep at night, which can be impacted by uh, stress. So do you see that, because uh, sometimes I get clients who overexercise and they're very stressed. There are just high stress lifestyles. And so I see that their cortisol is too high because of the stress. Then they're training like over, they're doing chronic cardio. So cardio will keep the cortisol up, which is fine during the exercise, but if you're stressed and you have all this cortisol going up and it doesn't seem to have a chance to come back down, that's when I I tell them to just back off a little bit, the chronic cardio and get the cortisol down and do some yoga or walk in the park or, you know, on the beach or something to, to manage that. So there probably is a a moment where you can overtrain, overstressed, and, and maybe there's a point of like a U curve when I guess when it comes to that a sweet spot when how when you are um, have high stress levels or depressed or depression 
you need to exercise, but maybe not too much. I don't, I don't know where that sweet spot is, but there must be somewhere. That is a good point. Actually, in, in the research I did with exercise as it relates to depression, we did see a U curve. And I'm trying to think what the levels were. I think it was something like 600 minutes per week is where we started to see kind of an increase in um, depression levels. So that's uh, 100 minutes a day, well, 600, 700 about a hundred minutes per day. And so I, I think there is a point where it can become a stressor on the body and that we just don't have enough time to recover from that. And so that's something for people to keep in mind as well. And when we're working with the lead athletes, we will see that a lot where they're overtraining and their heart rate isn't coming down. It's impacting their sleep. They're waking up during the middle of the night. And so, yeah, I do think there is a point where too much exercise just doesn't allow you to recover enough from the exercise. And then it can down the road impact your sleep as well. Yeah. Interesting. Um, actually maybe, um, Magdalena is here and she and I sometimes discuss in our aura rings where it will say that we're moving around too much or you're exercising too much, but we feel okay. So we, we're, we kind of ignore it sometimes, but Magdalena, do you have a question about that while we, we have Dr. Bender here? So I ask, you know, regarding this ring, if I apply inside what I'm doing, then it's like I was just uh, too active, let me say. But if I don't write insight into the application, what I was doing, walking, exercising in the fitness, then everything is okay. So I came to the point, you know, it's better not to write inside, just to leave it. The ring will measure the heartbeats and so on, and that's it. So my results are perfect. But if I put inside that I was walking, I don't know, half an hour, one hour, or if I was training one hour, then it's just everything too much. And everything is in red then. All the letters are in red and I don't want to see this. So do you know... <laughs> maybe something more about this aura ring because i think something is still missing it's not perfect device obviously <laughs> not for me interesting i wonder if they have some sort of activity algorithm in there so certain activities are weighted certainly and that's why that's why you're seeing this when you input a specific activity that it's showing you aren't recovering enough. I, I don't know the intricacies of the aura when it comes to the recovery aspect. I know that it's pretty accurate, but I wouldn't say it's perfect. And there are some experts who use proprietary heart rate when it comes to aura. So they'll input their information into a proprietary app that seems to be more accurate. Yeah, I wouldn't take it as an absolute that I should follow exactly what it's telling me to do. I think there is more work to be done and there is individual variability to where you may know your body better than, than the device. Can I ask you, so then do athletes need more sleep or better quality sleep than non-athletes? And I'm talking about professional because you've worked with but the Olympic Olympics, uh, Olympic um, athletes. So what are you finding with that? 
Well, athletes such as uh, Roger Federer, you know, is reporting between 11 and 12 hours, LeBron James, 12 hours, Michelle Wee, 10 to 12 hours, you know, like a lot of these athletes are taking sleep seriously and they know the importance to how this impacts their recovery and how this impacts their performance. Most of us aren't professional athletes or endurance athletes, so we don't need to get that much sleep. It does point to the fact that that there are a lot of athletes out there taking this very seriously. You know, teams are hiring sleep consultants to help with scheduling and um, help optimize uh, athlete sleep. And I actually, I've gotten people request, you know, professional athletes who who have issues with potentially gaming and need help trying to educate them on the importance of sleep and, and the impact of, you know, having an electronic device, playing a video game up until bedtime. I would say if a professional athlete isn't thinking about sleep, they are at a huge disadvantage. So then perhaps on the days that we train a little bit harder, would it behoove us to go to bed a little bit earlier or try to get a little bit more sleep? Yeah. Regarding your, your original question, do athletes need more sleep? I do think that if you have a hard workout that you will need to recover from that workout, typically you'll get more deeper stages of sleep if you have a hard workout. And so it may take more time to recover from that workout. And I agree. I think maybe getting to bed a little bit early or maybe supplementing with a nap can really help your body recover more from that difficult workout. I wouldn't say the the story is closed on this whatsoever, because there was a study, an interesting study, and it was a rodent study where they found um, the rodents were exercising on the wheel. And they found that actually some of their deep sleep was occurring while on the wheel. And um, so it was a monotonous activity where it looked as if they were kind of getting rid of some of that sleep need. And when we do look at the research in triathletes, they're actually the group that doesn't sleep the most. And so I'm curious, hmm, I wonder if they could be with this monotonous activity, kind of having some of those deeper brainwaves that are occurring. So it's not a closed book by any means, but in general, most sleep scientists would agree that if you are an athlete, you likely need more sleep to recover from the physical and mental demands of the sport. And what about for just the average person when you're sleeping? Is there, um, I know it's a chance to repair and recover, but in terms of muscle synthesis, are you better? So the short answer would be like, are you, a question would be, are you, can you build more muscle by getting more sleep? Ooh, that's a, that's a really good question. You know, typically growth hormone is released during the first part of the night. So growth hormone is released during the deepest stage of sleep, which is occurring usually in the first half of the night. So a lot of our deep sleep is occurring in the first half of the night. And a lot of our REM sleep is occurring in the last half of the night. So if I were to score a sleep study, it's likely that I wouldn't score a lot of stage three in the last half of the night because it's all occurring within those first three sleep cycles. Trying to think of where I was going with this. Sorry, what was your question? Can you build oh, yeah. muscle by sleeping, just getting to sleep or getting good quality sleep or maybe a bit yeah. more? 
I would probably disagree with the point because of what I've seen in when I'm scoring these sleep records. I may disagree with the point that if I were to sleep 10 hours, I'm going to be building more muscle than if I were to sleep nine hours, simply because of the fact that a lot of that deep sleep is occurring in the first half of the night. And that would be my argument against that. Now, that's part of the reason why these athletes are prioritizing sleep too, is they know that it can help repair muscles, help build muscles, help repair tissues. So that is one of their reasons for sleeping more. But I would probably argue the benefits are coming from long sleep, coming in a place that's maybe not related to building and repairing muscles. And I was just kind of looking at my clients who get six hours of sleep and they just want to burn fat or, you know, build, they mostly, you know, build muscle to burn fat. And so I just want to get them to sleep. And so if I can get them to seven, eight hours, I'd be happy. And if I could convince them that they'll build muscle while they sleep, then that would be a good argument. But if I can't use it, then I can't use it. But you can use, we should work on a post together, Zora, because there, there has been some studies that show They've done like a sleep deprivation model versus uh, someone who's extending their sleep. And I, it wasn't by that much. I think it was around seven and a half to eight hours versus like a five to six hour. And they find that in this particular study, I think it was people who were trying to lose weight. You know, they're a little bit overweight. And they found that in the sleep deprivation model, they were actually losing more muscle during the sleep deprivation and not losing as much fat as in the other normal sleep, sleep extension. So we should, yeah, we should work together on getting this message out there because uh, sleep does relate to body composition. And we are finding that with sleep deprivation, you're actually burning more lean muscle versus burning fat. Oh, I'll take it. That's a good one. I like that argument. That's, <laughs> that's proof enough. One more question that I, I want to ask everyone else, everyone else who's got questions here, please um, type them in the chat or get ready for them when I finish this question. I would like you to explain a little bit the connection between mitochondria, either the proliferation or optimization of mitochondria and exercise in terms of, you know, the more we exercise, will we feel more energized or mm right? That's some people think, oh, if I'm going to exercise hard, I'll be really tired. Yes. No, um, there is a relationship with uh, exercise and mitochondrial functioning for sure. And so typically exercise is beneficial for mitochondria, which helps with ATP and helps with our energy. Our main coin of energy is that ATP going on. So yes, that's absolutely Correct. I mean, people think, I don't know, for myself, I find that exercise helps get me energized as well. And so maybe it's the different type of exercise that the person is doing that maybe, um, for example, like if they went for a run and then they feel really tired afterward, you know, maybe if they added some strength training or a different type of exercise that maybe they would find benefit and energy from that. So that's, yeah, something to keep in mind. But in general, exercise is is very good for mitochondrial health. And I think going outdoors is like double points. 
because I noticed that when I yeah, my, kick my husband out of the house and go for a walk in the mountains, he comes back and he's just in such a great mood. And you think, okay, you got energy from somewhere and you got in a good mood. This is whole, not only exercising, but outdoors is another great, great way to do it. It's a trifecta because you're getting the exercise, you're getting the light, and then you're getting to be in nature, which is shown to reduce stress as well. Yes, exactly. So, okay, we got a couple questions here is what is the best body position to sleep in? Good question. And I I, uh, checked out, I think, Magdalena's talk previously. And I know for aging, you know, um, being on your back is is preferential. But Mm -hmm. from a sleep standpoint, being on your back is actually potentially the worst position for sleep. And let me explain why. You're more at risk for a sleep apnea when you're sleeping on your back. It's like gravity is like trying to close your airway when you're on your back. And so we will see a lot of people who may have sleep disordered breathing when it is only when they are on their back. And so especially during REM sleep, when your muscles are paralyzed and you're on your back, just the gravity is just trying to close those airways and those tissues. So from a sleep standpoint, I mean, and there haven't been super experimental studies looking at this, but in general, they find that those who sleep on their back report poor sleep quality. And that makes sense if we look at kind of the sleep disordered breathing standpoint. So in general, uh, sleeping on your side is kind of the recommended uh, position for better sleep quality. And, you know, I'll just put a caveat out there that I think more better research could be done in this area. But from kind of a subjective standpoint, when we look at different sleep positions and how that relates to their reported sleep quality, we generally see that people who sleep on their side have better sleep quality than for someone who's sleeping on their um, on their back. And then, I mean, I'm a stomach sleeper, so I'm not having the potential risk for sleep apnea in that position, but you also have to consider the chiropractors are all on my case because I think sleeping on your side with a pillow between your legs, it shows support for your back. But when you're on your stomach, it is not good for your back uh, support for them. Maybe chiropractors would recommend sleeping on your back actually. So it depends on uh, which specialist you're talking to, whether it's aging chiropractor or sleep specialist. But from my standpoint, sleeping on your side with the pillow between your legs is the best position for sleep. To add on to that, I learned that um, for the glymphatic drainage system to work for basically vacuuming out the brain, you know, having a better brain health is better on your right side. And if it's Mm. digestion, it's better on your left side. Or wrinkles, it's on your back. And it's like you said, it depends what you want to do. And I wind up finding out I have no choice because I always wake up on my side. Anyways, I always start on my back, but yeah, I've moved in the sleep. So it's hard to control, I guess, to a certain extent. There are different shirts out there that have tennis balls sewed into them. And primarily, I think this was used for people with sleep apnea. And so it really helps. There are different devices out there that can help you sleep on your side. Like most of these devices are for avoiding sleeping on your back. So they have like a tennis ball sewn into the back of your shirt that you wear. And then you don't end up sleeping on your back because it's uncomfortable. So there are some weird devices out there to help with that. 
Interesting. Yeah. I, when I was pregnant, I couldn't sleep on my stomach anymore. And, um, that's how I, I, and I had a C-section. So I, I trained myself to sleep on my back because I guess you get a big bump and you can't, you can't sleep on it anymore. And you have a, an operation, you can't sleep there. So it's interesting how different things can change your body positions. There's another question here. I get 20 to 30% REM sleep, even if I've slept five hours, but more sleep, more REM sleep. However, my deep sleep scores are 10 to 15% always under my, always under my REM sleep. How can I improve my deep sleep? What do my, what do my stats tell you? Now, this has a lot to do with what I mentioned earlier with the deep sleep occurring in the first half of the night. Typically, a normal distribution of sleep stages would be about 5% lightest stage of sleep. And I'm talking stage one, uh, 50% stage two. So we're looking at about 55% of what the aura ring would call light sleep. From there, we're looking at about 20% of deep sleep. So now we're up to 75%, which leaves about 25% for REM sleep. So it looks like the REM sleep is well within the normal range for this person, for Pauline. Now for the deep sleep, as we age, we actually start decreasing our deep sleep. So as we age, I think once you hit about 40 or so, which is I'm 41. So um, I'm noticing this myself that you end up losing out on a lot of that deep sleep. And it's just, we're not really quite sure why that's occurring, but there are a few things you can do to help with that. One thing that comes to mind is exercise, which we're talking about here today. So potentially adding in a more difficult workout. So that would be my number one. Uh, Number two would be to try and limit caffeine intake we find that caffeine can impact our deeper stages of sleep at night. So I would play around with maybe timing your caffeine a little bit earlier, maybe even a few, you know, try and not be as reliant on caffeine as maybe you normally would. And so for me, I I drink decaf and I still have the ritual of having that coffee in the morning, the smell, the hot beverage, et cetera it's not necessarily impacting some of those deep brainwave activities. So that's another thing that comes to mind is caffeine. And I'm trying to think having a good uh, pre-sleep routine, having ways to de-stress during the day. So I think that could also lead to better deep sleep as well. So managing stress throughout the day, but then having a good wind down routine before bedtime, an hour before bedtime, put away the electronics, take a warm bath or shower, write a to-do list, you know, get some of those stressful thoughts off your mind, put them away, do relaxation techniques, breathing technique. One of my favorites is the cognitive shuffle, where you think of a word such as bedtime, imagine all the objects you can, starting with B, ball, baby, bus, bag, move on to the next letter, eagle, egg, ear, and you just imagine these objects and it kind of simulates what I probably talked about this before because I love this technique, Um, but it simulates what happens when you're falling asleep. And so having some of those kind of tricks in the bag before sleep will help lead to better sleep quality, help potentially lead to better deep sleep, but also in the middle of the night as well, having some of these techniques to help you. And I think Yeah, try those out and definitely keep us posted um, if that helped improve the deep sleep. And ultimately, 
it may be an accuracy issue with the aura ring. So I wouldn't fret too much about it. If, I mean, I get people messaging me all the time. It's showing I only have 5% deep sleep or it's showing I didn't have any REM sleep. In reality, I don't think that was really true. So the 20% REM and deep is, would be considered a good, a good night's sleep, correct? Yeah. So about 20% uh, deep sleep and about 25, 20 to 25% REM sleep is kind of within that normal range. And what's optimal? We want to be superhuman. So (laughs) I know, I know, I know. I mean, I would say, yeah, I would say if you're getting 20% deep sleep, like that is, that is really good. There isn't, there isn't a lot of work on like what becomes dangerous, you know, or what becomes unoptimal, like is 25% too much deep sleep. And it, to me, that would kind of raise a red flag because when we're sleep deprived, we have more deeper sleep from recovery. And I know that from those studies I was working at, we'd show, so if I pull an all nighter, if I pull an all nighter on the next night of sleep, it's probably going to show me at 25% plus deep sleep. So I think there can be a point where maybe you're sleep deprived and that could be leading to 25% deep sleep. And you think it's a good thing, but in reality, it's not. So I would try and aim for that 20% mark for, for deep sleep and then a 20% to 25% for REM sleep. And ultimately, I mean, that's what I'm really interested in is how can wearables that we're wearing day in and day out and these different activities that we're doing, like how can we really, really personalize, prescribe different activities for an individual and how that will then optimize their sleep. I mean, that's what I'm really interested in. So I just, yeah, just doing the right things when it comes to sleep hygiene, Um, exercise, stress reduction, limiting caffeine, limiting alcohol as well, uh, will really, really be beneficial for people. But I I don't think we're quite there on the more individualized, personalized aspects. Perhaps medications, does that disrupt sleep too? Or potentially, um, we're we're actually talking about a study we want to do with normal sleepers and giving them a sleeping pill and see how that impacts their sleep depth. Mm-hmm. on a more fine grain analysis, because in general, you don't see a lot of like macro sleep architecture changes per se. I mean, you may see more lighter stages of sleep with different types of medications, but in general, you know, they say, oh, they're safe and um, they're not impacting sleep because there aren't those macro changes in the sleep stages. But we're really interested in looking at it on a more fine-grained sleep depth level, like what is really going on with these people. And so that is something we want to explore is looking at different kind of medications and how that impacts the sleep depth. Um, this is a question I'm going to throw at you, and you'll quickly respond because we'll, it'll be a whole other topic for a podcast. Mm-hmm. I've been listening to a lot of, uh, not a lot, I've been listening to a few podcasts on mega dosing melatonin, you know, first high, high dose melatonin was considered 20 milligrams, 10 to 20 milligrams. But today I heard a podcast with Ben Greenfield about 200 to 600 milligrams of melatonin for for health benefits, not necessarily, it's not just, it's not for sleep. It's, it's, so it would be interesting to hear your thoughts. If you know anything about the high dose and the mega dose of the benefits of that. 
Oh, wow. That is really interesting. I mean, melatonin is showing antioxidant properties. So that's probably why there is this connection here. And yeah, I heard of a study for melatonin protecting high doses of melatonin protecting against COVID. So that's probably why this is of particular interest uh, lately. I don't know a lot in this area with mega doses. I mean, the stuff I know is related to very small physiological doses. So we're talking 0.5 milligrams of melatonin is useful for shifting circadian rhythms to an earlier time. So if you're a night owl, melatonin at this very, very, very small dose is going to be great for your circadian rhythms. When we get into higher doses, and when I say higher doses, I'm talking like three milligrams, um, (laughs) is kind of the optimal dose for both a hypnotic effect, so helping you fall asleep quicker, but also that circadian impact. And in general, you know, we typically say melatonin for, let's say, insomnia or falling asleep quicker, really only adds, you know, only makes you fall asleep five to seven minutes faster. So it's not really effective, I would say, as a hypnotic. But um, when we're talking those mega doses, I'm really curious to see these people must be waking up groggy. Ben Greenfield said he does it. uh, Some people do it actually when you're talking about high doses, about the 10 to 20 milligrams. um, So these people are taking it in the morning for for the health benefits. But when Ben Greenfield does it, I don't know, the 200 to 300 milligrams, he says he wakes up groggy, but goes outdoors immediately and it's gone in a second because of the light. So that's how we would mitigate that groggy feeling. So he admits to being groggy, which to who, you know, who wants to wake up groggy, but you know, are you willing to do that for the health benefits, but let's do a little research, go see what the science says. <laughs> we'll, do that. we'll do that podcast. Cause I want to move on to the next question is um, how to have a good sleep when you are under stress, like having burnout, which supplements and foods would you recommend? That is a good question. I was uh, actually experiencing that myself with like a few important presentations. I just started a new job and I noticed I was waking up during the middle of the night and just being my brain was like wide awake. There is a huge relationship between sleep and stress, which we talked about earlier in the previous podcast. But as far as foods go, I actually did some research recently because I'm working with a company who wants to develop a sleep gummy. And um, I did a lot of research into this on different um, supplements and how that leads to better sleep quality. And number one, the melatonin, you know, at the small doses, three milligrams, it improves sleep quality, like I mentioned, five to seven minutes. But magnesium was a big one that I found. And especially, and I know there's a relationship, I think, between magnesium deficiency and stress. So that is something for people to look into. And especially what I found in my research was magnesium glycinate in particular was a very useful for sleep because glycinate itself on its own led to better sleep quality in this particular study. So magnesium glycinate is one for people to check out. Uh, Also, I'm trying to think, I I looked into chamomile. I did not find anything with chamomile. I looked into valerian root. I did not find anything substantial for valerian root. I looked into ashwagandha. Ashwagandha was an interesting one. 
there was only really one good study as it related to sleep quality and it seemed to show some benefits. So, so that's something for people to check out. And then tart cherry juice is a big one that tart cherries lead to more melatonin production. So tart cherry juice, and this one was, it was one ounce of Montmessori cherry juice taken uh, two times per day and showed a huge benefit on sleep quality. People got something like 60 more minutes of sleep per night. And this was in insomnia, people with insomnia. So not necessarily someone with normal sleep. So uh, cherry juice was a big one. And then I saw that kiwis, kiwi fruit. So two kiwi fruit, I think it was within hour of bedtime, had really, really amazing benefits on sleep. So those are just a few things for people to check out. And, and I am working on developing a gummy to kind of incorporate some of those for better sleep quality. I heard of the kiwi thing too years ago, a couple, you know, a couple of years ago. I remember doing posts on that ages, and I just thought it was amazing. I just I don't remember I, the, that it was two kiwis, but I'm gonna have to try that. And uh, and my daughter always has a little some sleep troubles when she's stressed or got exams, which we have right now. So I'll try it. Another question: Wondering how long is your REM and deep sleep? <laughs> That's funny. Um, so. <laughs> Funny enough, I have a Garmin Forerunner, which is mainly I use for exercise. And there's actually a really cool feature with, if you want to do a running program, you can have like this online coach and it kind of tells you programs your, your running routines based on the, the length of the race, et cetera. So I primarily use it for that. And I, I take it off at bedtime because I know that the Garmin in particular is not very accurate with sleep. Funny enough, I'm a sleep scientist and I'm not really studying my sleep uh, in much detail. I think it can lead to anxiety. And I, I think people need to keep that in mind that, you know, we're looking at these devices, they're giving us feedback and we have to consider the accuracy of those devices. So I am really curious. I did some recent studies with the device that I was talking about, our Prodigy 2 device uh, that can measure like sleep disorders at home. So um, I am, I will keep you posted on that. I haven't analyzed the data yet to see on some of those deeper sleep metrics, kind of what's going on. I'll keep you posted on that. And actually, we want to have Zora try it out when she's in the US just to see how it compares to Aura Ring and yeah, what, what are the differences between those two? Oh, I'd love to hear that. I try them out and let you know, be, be your guinea pig. Um, I remember when, when we talked uh, before on our a, a previous podcast, when it came to devices, we agreed that because it's not a perfect science, we have to take it with a grain of salt. And we look at trends. It's not necessarily the number. Are you really getting 20%? Is it 25? Is it 18? I don't know. Who cares? The most important thing is that you know that you're improving that number if you don't feel that it's optimized. It's kind of like a body fat composition scale, the same thing. You step on it and are you 18% body fat or 25? And I don't know, but we just want to get that, that number down or up if you're underweight, under fat. So that's the trends. And that's the thing that we keep in mind with any device that we use. None of them are perfect science. It's we're not in a lab where you got much, much more accurate mm-hmm. devices. 
So, but look at the trends and see, see how it's going in that. And then you can test things out and see if something helps you get better deep sleep. And again, do you feel like my measurement always is, I always ask my clients, how do you feel? Even though the scale says you gained weight or didn't weigh, it didn't change, or your aura ring says that you didn't get the crown and you had bad sleep. Do you feel like you did get something? You go, yeah, I feel good. My pants are actually fitting better and I feel energized. Well, then who cares what the ring says or what a scale says? Listen to yourself. You're, you're the best scientist and you, your body is your own experiment and you could figure it all out on your own without devices. Yeah. Yes. And I think, um, I think that's a great point and I don't want to totally negate the devices out there. I think they do have a utility and especially like you were saying, when you're experimenting with, um, you know, the number itself may not be accurate, but when you're experimenting with caffeine or exercise, you know, how does that change that number for the better? And so they can be useful and they can be actually motivating for people, but Really, you are the best judge of your your own experience. I want to let everybody know how to find you. Uh, you're so easy to find on Instagram at Sleep for Sport, and that's sleep spelled like sleep, but the number four instead of F O R Sport. And your website, wellness, sleepwelltowin.com, is it up yet? I'm actually having website issues right now. Um, I think I got hacked. It wasn't ready by any means, but I started working on it again. And then, yeah, so I have to like figure that out. But um, I'm hoping within the next month or two that you'll be able to go to sleepwellthewind.com and be able to find lots of good information on everything that we talked about. And that's kind of my ultimate goal is to really for a place for people to go to get information that they trust on sleep. It's not quite there yet, yeah, you can follow my work on Instagram or Twitter at Sleep for Sport, and then I'll be able to update you on um, when that website is ready. <laughs> oh, that's fine. I'll, I'll include it on the show notes either way. So you guys can find out all the ways to, to connect with Dr. Bender on the show notes. And I will also, when that website's up as well, I'll update it too for you. So thank you so much for, for giving us your time and sharing your knowledge. And thank you everybody who's been here to the end and, and even before, (laughs) I really appreciate you hanging around and that's, and that's it. So thank you so much. And hopefully we'll see you again. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. I so sorry we started late, but, um, really great of you to stick around and, uh, Hope you enjoyed some of the information and thanks for having me, Zora. Take care. Have a good day. Good night. Good morning, wherever you are. Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.